0: Writers Forum. I'm Mike Tusa, your host. Today, I'll be interviewing James Lambert, retired attorney and author of a wonderful collection of short stories entitled Sub Rosa and Other Stories. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. I'm very excited. Well, let's jump right in. Now, as a lawyer, you wrote countless briefs and memos and motions. Did you have any trouble transitioning from legal writing to creative writing?
1: Well, first, Michael, I want to note a Freudian slip. You you characterize me as a warrior, and, uh, you know, that's an interesting way to put it because I was a trial lawyer, and uh, that's one of the differences. That's a major difference, uh, being an advocate for your clients uh, versus creating stories of uh, imaginary characters. And... Uh, one thing I always told people is that, unfortunately, in law, you're constrained by these things called facts and, um, you know, that, uh, that re- relegates you to expositional writing uh, of a very technical nature versus creative writing, which is a whole different process. Well, what, what did you
0: find was the biggest difference when you transitioned to writing creatively?
1: Well, I, you know, I had studied creative writing under Ernest Gaines, uh, who was a fine Southern writer, uh, and many a long-time uh, professor at University of Louisiana, Lafayette. And, um, you know, I realized actually when I finally retired from law and started writing in earnest that I really didn't know much about the craft. <laughs> and uh, I had to learn that from my wonderful editor in Georgia named Val Matthews. And it was through the about three years of editing these stories and and rewriting uh, that I kind of learned. Uh, And the biggest difference, again, is one is expositional. You're trying to lay out a a case for a judge. And the other, you know, you have the privilege of of creating something, a new world, a new character that's changing. And uh, it's a, you know, law had to give way for me to have room in my head to write, I think you probably know that feeling too. Well, let me ask you
0: this: Why did you choose uh, short stories as your genre, as opposed to, say, a
1: novel or a novella? Well, for some reason, I wasn't ever—I have not yet been attracted to a set of characters that would constitute a novel. Uh, I always admired the short story writing of people like Richard Ford, Raymond Carver. Um, Andre de who was born and raised part of his life in Louisiana, Flannery O'Connor, they, they just captured my imagination. And I like the idea of the economy of words and a tight plot. And so that appealed to me. But if someday I get the inspiration and in a group of characters comes into my mind, uh, maybe I'll try, like you, to write a, a novel. The economy of words, that's uh, is, that's an oxymoron for us lawyers, right? <laughs>
0: well, let me get you to read an Another excerpt. difference, another yes. difference. <laughs> let me see if we can get you to read an excerpt from, from these wonderful short stories, well,
1: and tell us which one you're
0: going to read from.
1: Well, then... this is a, a story called Find Franny Now. It's set in New Orleans. Um, a young lady who's dealing with some very difficult circumstances. And this is the beginning of the story. She knew it was wrong, but she did it anyway. Lydia pulled her autistic son across the steaming asphalt parking lot of Children's Hospital. The pair moved in fits and starts toward the dose of radiation that would be shot into the center of his brain. Taking Justin anywhere in public was a contest of wills in the form of a sporadic tug-of-war. Justin broke away, crashing into a chain-link fence surrounding the parking lot. Coating the fence were row upon row of missing person posters, all for the same missing person. The posters read, Find Franny Now. Franny's face smiled out from each poster at passersby. Lydia corralled Justin and pressed him against the fence to get to regain control. Stepping back with Justin in hand, she stared at the ubiquitous pleas for help by the grieving parents of a missing teenager. Did these people really believe somehow that plastering these posters all over the city would bring their daughter home? Justin continued to tug on her arm. Sweat trickled down her temples. She ripped down a row of posters and quickly stuffed them in a trash barrel before anyone could see what she had done. The missing teenager's bicycle had been found the day before in the swampy land on the other side of the levee, along with some of her clothes. Lydia couldn't understand people's mania with these goddamn posters. Lydia wasn't coming home, and Lydia damn well knew it. She accepted it, just as she accepted the fact that her son Justin was dying from brain cancer and that her husband Paul was living with another woman. Oh, she had wanted to run, wanted to crawl into a bottle, but no, she was trapped. Mothers don't run, at least not in her family. So Lydia accepted it all. She had to. It was real. She had no time these days for anything but reality. She knew now the rest was bullshit, welcome, no welcome home, Fanny, no Easter Bunny, no happily ever after, no till death do us part. People could not, who could not accept reality were fools, and she had no use for fools. The oncology waiting room at Children's was tiny and cold. The room featured fresh flowers, and there were soft couches and leathered armchairs for the families, simulating a faux hominess. The place was freezing. Lydia took a seat with two sets of parents whose children were undergoing procedures that morning. She felt obliged to exchange stories with them, something she resented, but it seemed that such recitations were socially required here at Children's among parents bearing the unbearable. Somehow it seemed to help, at least for others. He's having his first radiation session, she answered in response to a question by one mother. They're using a fluoroscope to target the cancer. They're trying to hit his brain tumor. A brief silence ensued. The inquiring mother finally replied, Lord have mercy on you, sweetie. Sam and I are just dealing with leukemia. They're optimistic about a remission. We got lots of prayer warriors praying for him, lots of rosaries around the clock. We can feel it, the love of Jesus in our bodies. My husband and I believe prayers work when nothing else will. I sure wish you the best. You just keep praying. You'll see. Oh, thank you. You know how it is. One day at a time, said Lydia. Perfect. Another platitude. Conversation ended. This was why she hated to talk to other parents. Prayer warriors? Let them take on medulloblastoma. What else could she say? The lady didn't want to hear her truth. Hell, her kid had leukemia. They got a cure for that. But nothing personal. It was just small talk, like in a, a long elevator ride. That's excellent. excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Let
0: me ask you this. Several of your stories, uh, Tuesday, which is one of the stories, Mm -hmm. mentions Tuesday Wells and Charles Manson. And then -hmm. another story, Mm -hmm. uh, Minor Miracles, uh, mentions Nadia Mm Suleiman, the so-called Octomom. I had to look that one up. Um, (laughs) It's a little little old. (laughs) You incorporate references to real people that Mm -hmm. you
1: then build a story around. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with that idea? I, I read a, a novel a number of years ago by TC Boyle, who is definitely one of the best novelists and short story writers uh, writing today. And he wrote a book about the life of Frank Lloyd Wright called The Women. And it was kind of told from the perspective of one of uh, Lloyd Wright's uh, grad, i mean, students that came studying under him, but all about his life and his spouses and mistresses and so forth. And uh, I just got the idea that, you know, I love history, and as you can tell in my stories, many of them are laced with history, and that's kind of the germ of that idea. Okay, are any of the characters that you've written about in these short stories autobiographical? Okay, very personal question, uh, Mike, but uh, just just between us, you know, just privately, and no one else has to hear this, but there are two of them that are autobiographical, are you going to share those with I, us? I'll you? share one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let the readers guess the other one. Okay. Uh, the uh, one that is autobiographical uh, that I'll tell you about is Hobby Shop, about a uh, young boy who wants a gas-powered model airplane, like when we were young that used to fly around on strings. And uh, his father is wants some other things for him. It's called Hobby Shop. But okay. uh, yeah.
0: Are other characters composites? of different people you know?
1: Oh, uh, well, certainly. I think every writer, you know, has to, you know, many of these stories uh, come from a nugget of truth that I've heard. I've heard someone tell a little bit of a story. I met someone on a motorcycle ride, and I heard their story. I saw something like, for example, Lucinda came from a a ride I took in Arkansas where I saw uh, an ad for someone who would kill wild hogs and uh, pictures of these gigantic, you know, wild hawks in Arkansas. So I wrote a story about just starting with that little nugget. That's a great story, too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I've also heard that a good character
0: uh, at some point, if it's created right, will actually kind of take over the story and start to write it for
1: you. Is that also applicable with short stories? Well, I think so. You know, uh, when I thought about the concept... um, I thought of a couple of stories that started with characters, and, you know, I, for example, I heard a nugget uh, or, uh, from somebody, and I started with that nugget and that character in the very beginning of the story. I didn't know how the story would unfold when I started writing it, but I knew that nugget was true, and that's an anchor at the beginning of the story, and I'll give you two of them. One uh, is called Slab City, and um, it's about a lady who lives a very organized life in northern Arkansas. And she's a stalwart of the Episcopal Church there, and uh, everything in her life is organized, except she's got this wayward son. And, um, you know, she finds out some... <laughs> Terrible news at the beginning of the story, and then she goes on a journey. And I did not know where that journey would take her. Uh, I did hear that little nugget about this woman on a on a motorcycle trip. Uh, sadly, I had to give up motorcycling a few years ago after I had my first wreck. So uh, <laughs> that story, that story, by the way, reminded me a
0: little bit of Into the Wild. Yeah, It's yeah. just a little bit of a, a flavor of that. It's also yeah. very well yeah. done. Yeah. So you have these different short stories. Mm-hmm. Are there any recurring themes, uh, you know, a thread
1: or two that you feel uh, binds the stories together? Well, one of my old high school friends who uh, was a former police chief in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, read this collection. And it was quite interesting you asked that question because I personally did not realize that there was an arc or there was a commonality uh, in these stories. And uh, my friend uh, told me, he said, oh, I got to the last story, which is called Sub Rosa. And then I realized what you were doing this whole time. And okay, so I as a debut author, I just. When I was organizing this book, I just chose Sub Rosa because I thought it was an interesting title. And I had seen a collection of Raymond Carver's stories where he put the title story last. So I said, okay, I'll put Subrosa last. <clears throat> uh, so Subrosa, uh, the meaning of Subrosa, back in the Greek and Roman days, they would choose a room in a house and they would paint roses on the ceiling. And if something was said between two people in that room, it was to be held confidential. It was a sacred trust between friends. So the meaning sub rosa, uh, we have a figure of speech, meaning, you know, there's something secret or confidential about this story. And that plays a part in the particular story called sub rosa. But. So my friend Jimmy, after uh, reading this, said, Oh, I see all these stories. All of them are kind of little secret stories about the lives of these characters. And in a way, they are. Uh, There are some stories about hidden history, which I'll talk about in a minute probably, about the hidden history of our land, of things that we don't want to remember. But these are also personal stories. Uh, A lot of one of my friends in Denver said, all these stories were about trauma, Jim. (laughs) And so I said, well, you know, if the story is everyone lived happily ever after and lived in peace, the end, you know, you're not going to read that story. (laughs) So I guess all these stories are about Pain in some degree, and uh, things that might otherwise not come out except in fiction. You know, it's interesting. I've learned from talking to authors over the years and from my own writing,
0: readers quite often see things in our writing. That we were unaware of as we were writing. Absolutely. No. You're gonna. Have you had that experience beyond your friend Jimmy that you
1: told us about? Well, you know, like my friend, uh, you know, told me in Denver. Yeah, you know, she. This is a lady that teaches at Smith College and University of Colorado, and very respected lady. And uh, she noticed that that they were there was trauma involved, mm-hmm. and and I and I wasn't consciously trying to write about trauma. I was just writing my heart and from things that interested me. I got you. Well, you know, there,
0: you mentioned this when you were answering earlier, there are several historical references in your mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Um, in the town named Out of Spite, you referenced the Colfax Riot of 1873 in Grand mm-hmm. Parish. Mm-hmm. And then in a Report to Mrs. Roosevelt... You focus on the so-called Lee Street Riot of 1942, yeah. which occurred in Alexandria, Louisiana. Both right. of these stories in right. Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And both of these incidents, which, as I read it, are misnamed as riots. Yes, uh, massacres. Black, yeah, been... Black citizens were killed by white citizens or police. How did you learn about these events, and what made you decide to build stories mm-hmm. around
1: them? Well, I grew up in Alexandria, uh, graduated from high school there, went to college a couple of years, at a little Baptist college there for a couple of years. I uh, still have a lot of friends, and uh, I still have some <clears throat> some property up there, and um, my heart is there in, in some way. And during uh, my childhood, I would hear about a massive riot that occurred in during World War II, where many people were killed, many black citizens were killed. I didn't know much about it. Um, and... Uh, You know, when I started becoming, you know, a a little bit more enlightened adult, uh, I started looking into the history and found one very scholarly article by a history professor at Louisiana College that had laid this out, laid uh, the—basically, this is something that occurred about seven weeks after Pearl Harbor. Some black troops were on weekend uh, leave, and about 80 police officers uh, opened up on a bunch of unarmed troops, and many eyewitness accounts uh, testify to as many as 15 to 18 soldiers were murdered. And um, after a melee started, you know, a fight had started. But uh, so that, and then the Colfax riot, I I was actually taking another motorcycle ride, and. There was this insane plaque that was literally just taken down about two months ago. Uh, it was erected in 1950, uh, celebrating the end of carpetbag misrule in the South uh, as a result of 150 Negroes and three whites being killed in this so-called riot. And as you look at the plaque itself, you go, that's absurd. It's crazy. So these things, I don't know. they I wanted to... Um, I wanted to get this message out, and I thought that fiction might be a way to do it. And um, so they they enlightened uh, or informed uh, two of these stories. Well, can I get you to read another excerpt from Absolutely. This? Of course, I should say. This is uh, from the uh, um, story Harold and Harold, and the setting is a psychiatric ward in East Louisiana State Hospital. Uh, and it involves the wonderful movie Harold and Maude. Uh, some, I, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say some of us are old enough to remember. Absolutely. If you haven't, if you don't know what it is, look it up and watch it on Netflix because it is amazing. I had no training in psychiatric medicine. This was my first job, a night nurse at East Louisiana Hospital in Jackson. My instructions were simple enough. First, give the medicine as prescribed. Second, make sure the patients don't kill one another. We were always shorthanded. If I got into trouble, there was a phone to call security. I mostly stayed locked in a glass-enclosed office with a view of the common area on the ward. I figured with four catatonics and two middle-aged manic-depressives, I could manage just fine. But it was Friday, movie night. Trouble was brewing between the two patients who could talk. The men were standing face-to-face near the TV and VCR in an alcove filled with worn leatherette couches and huge ceramic pots holding long-dead houseplants. I could hear raised voices as an argument broke out. Both were wearing their light green hospital togs and state-issued slippers. Both veteran patients on the ward, the two normally were quite chummy, playing cards and watching TV together without incident. One of them, Tom McGinnis, was holding the remote high in the air, while the other, Harold Chason, tried to grab it away. If I hear Cat Stevens one more time, I swear I'll throw that VCR in the trash, McGinnis said, and stepped away from the grasping hands of his antagonist. You can't be wanting to watch that movie again, Harold. You watched it last week. You watch it every time it's your turn. Come on, man. We got Star Wars, China Syndrome, Coming Home good movies, not some crap about a suicidal queer screwing an 80-year-old woman. McGinnis, have you ever watched this movie? Thanks to you, I've seen all parts of it at various times. If you mean, have I sat down with you through the whole sick thing? No, I can't say I have. There you go, Harold said. The single thing guaranteed to keep a man in ignorance is contempt before examination. As for Cat Stevens, his music is joyous, you might want to try it sometime. You might like it. Besides, it's Saturday, Friday night, and it's my turn to choose the movie. McGinnis slapped the remote into Harold's outstretched hands and huffed over to the glass barrier surrounding the nursing station. He gently tapped it and moved his face to the opening. Miss Arnold, I wonder if you might help us head off a dispute here. So, see, Harold wants to watch the same movie we watched last week, and I thought, Tom, I heard the whole thing, I said. He's right. It's his turn to choose. Being that there are only six of you on the ward, and the other four are catatonics, you two need to learn to cooperate. You know, agree rather than disagree. If you don't want to watch Harold and Maud, then go read a book, take a walk in the courtyard, listen to your radio. There's lots of stuff to pass the time. Maybe you could work on your feeling diary. McKinnis threw up his hands and sulked down the hall to the room that he shared with Harold. I finished preparing the tray of medications that I administered to the ward patients at night. Each patient was represented by a small paper cup containing the chemistry that helped them stay connected to the world the staff knew as reality. Medication, Mr. Chassot, I said, and extended the paper cup with Harold's nightly meds. "'What's this movie about?' I asked. "'Harold merely extended his arm to grab the paper cup off the tray, "'not averting his eyes from the TV screen. "'Are you asking just to make conversation, "'or do you really want to know?' "'He pressed pause and turned his huge green eyes toward me for my response. "'Maybe a little bit of both,' I said. "'It looks like from the 60s or maybe 70s.' "'Harold rubbed his chin as if he was stroking a beard that once graced his face. "'How old are you, Miss Arnold?' Twenty, but I got my LPN. Hmm, I see. But I was only asking your age. He tapped his pointer finger on his cheek. His green-eyed stare continued. I looked down at my chest to make sure my uniform hadn't popped a button. You were five, he said. Pardon, I was what? The movie was released in 1971, You Were Five. It's the only thing keeping me from tying my bedsheets together and hanging myself. So I guess you could say I adore it. It's about life, Miss Arnold, and the reasons we carry on rather than giving up. It's a classic. You want to watch it with me? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. When
0: you're writing a short story, you know, you talked about editing and rewriting and mm-hmm. re- rereading. Yeah. How do you know when a story is finished? Or do you ever know when a story's finished?
1: Well, Jerry's Carol Oates, who I... I love her short stories. Um, some of her novels are a little too uh, creepy for me to enjoy. She is a hell of a writer. But I watch one of these uh, master classes. I'm subscribed to that. And one of the ways I learned this craft is watching these great videos, Salman Rushdie and Neil Gaiman and Miss Oates. And she said, end when you've said enough. Now, you know, that's... Nice. But I would say this, too. Uh, end when your character has changed. That's... Uh, Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, I mean, you know, every... You know, My goal is just to try to tell something interesting and keep the reader wanting to read. Right. And, you know, from all of these great writers, I get the message that, you know, what keeps... People reading is conflict and change, and the conflict, of course, leads to the change. And you know, once a character has changed, you know, maybe the story is winding down. That's a great that point, way to put it. You know yeah. All right, I'm going to switch gears on you completely here, okay? And in
0: our last few minutes, ask you about something I read, and that is that you're involved in a prison ministry.
1: Uh, it is called Cairo's Prison Ministry. I've been involved in, with it since 19, I mean, excuse me, uh, 2001. Uh-huh. and uh, it is a program in about 35 states, but uh, we put on these uh, really intense uh, spiritual retreats at the maximum security facilities. And finally, uh, we were asked to come in about in 2018 and do one in death row, which was the first time in the nation. There were only about 20 of us that were do- put on this retreat for 10 death row inmates.
0: Is this at Angola?
1: It's Angola. And uh, it was the first time those men ever had any, anything, literally, anything, <laughs> any kind of group activity. Well, I hate to ask it this way, but there's some stories that will arise out of that. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the more activity you're involved in uh, that is of a soulful nature, you know, when when you're around suffering, when you're around soulfulness, and there are tremendous moments of joy and um, light also during those weekends. These are the first time these men have had visitors that, you know, didn't really want anything from were just there to be there and uh, be with them and, and, uh, you know, uh, so it, yes, that soulfulness definitely uh, is food for stories.
0: You've been listening to uh, Writers Forum and we've been talking with author James Lambert and discussing his book of wonderful short stories entitled Sub Rosa and Other Stories. Uh, Thanks for visiting with us today. I'm your host, Mike Tusa. Until next time. Mike,
1: thank you so much for having me.